Gracious God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do give you all honor and glory and praise for who you are, for for what you've done in the lives of your people, for how you continue to act in this great drama of redemption, and that you work to save your people. And we pray that you would give us insight into your word this morning as we study a, uh, a passage full of danger and drama, but behind it all is your purpose to bring your servant Paul to Rome, uh, and that uh, in the midst of um, seemingly hopeless situations, that you give a word of encouragement, um, because you're the one who dictates the end of all things. We ask that your spirit would uh, speak to us this morning, that same spirit that inspired Luke to write these words before us. Uh, May that same spirit teach us this morning, Uh, bless our conversation, help us build one another up in the faith and love of Jesus Christ, that we might serve him with all our hearts, minds, soul, and strength. Uh, Feed us by your spirit through your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 27. And while you turn there, I'll remind us where we are in the book. So way back in chapter 19, Paul declared that after he visited Jerusalem, he must see Rome. And since that that point, um, Luke has been describing the kind of convoluted means by which the apostle will reach the center of the empire Uh, the imperial city, which is where the book of Acts will end when we get to Rome next week. Um, For the last several chapters, though, Paul hasn't been doing much journeying. He's been stuck in uh, a prison, first in Jerusalem and then in Caesarea. And the focus of these past few chapters have been Paul's defense. He's made multiple defense speeches before the crowd that sought to kill him, the Jewish council, two different Roman governors, and last week, as we saw, before a king and his sister and and other um, Roman imperial officials. The focus of these chapters has been Paul's defense, but not primarily against the specific charge with which he's accused of desecrating the temple, but instead it's been a defense of the Christian message that he proclaims. Paul repeatedly presents himself um, in these various tribunals as a faithful Jew who in good conscience has sought to follow the law and prophets faithfully, which means faith in and obedience to the resurrected Jesus, whom God has told Paul to preach to the Gentiles. Um, As I noted last week, uh, the one commentator who summarized Paul's defense as, the true Jew must become a Christian in order to remain a Jew. Luke has repeatedly demonstrated Paul's innocence as multiple authorities have found no fault in his views, and indeed the last um, verses of chapter 26 ended with Festus, Bernice, Agrippa, and other officials saying to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. But Paul did appeal to Caesar, having received a vision from God telling him to take courage, 
For as you've testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And it's this appeal to Caesar that sets the stage for chapter 27. Um, And in chapter 27, we get a sea journey. Let me tell you how excited I am. But um, I'll I'll try to avoid uh, getting bogged down in the minutia of first century A.D. Roman sailing vessels. Um, (laughs) um, Because the chapter, uh, as we'll see, um, the chapter is about how God continues to keep his promises, saving Paul's life, delivering him from repeated brushes with death, Um, and saving Paul and his companions for this purpose to which God has set them apart. So with that, let me read for us uh, Acts chapter 27, beginning in verse 1. And And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramentium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon. And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friend and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea, Along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Sidness. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, Supposing they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind, called the Northeaster, struck from down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running, running under the lee of the small island called Calda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used the ports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began next, the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. 
when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven along, across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that we, they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. And a little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boats into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you've continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were, in all, 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. May he enlarge it in our hearts as we discuss it this morning. So, lots of specific uh, details that Luke gives us about, um, uh, you know, these voyages that Paul takes from Caesarea toward Rome. And other than the desire just to be historically accurate, as we see Luke repeatedly as um, trying to set things in, in good order um, for his um, 
his audience. Um, let's just take, before we dig into some of the details, let's think about what's the big point that Luke is trying to get across by including such a detailed sea voyage in this account. Um, so what do the particulars emphasize? Or if you had to pick a word or phrase to try to summarize that cha this chapter, what would it be? What's for? Okay, nautical. <laughs> Ronnie. Yeah, I mean, and again, I giddy about getting to talk about this. Um, yeah, that's the great thing about ships is that how you know it, you have a a trapped audience, <laughs> um, and you get to see and interact people closely. And um, you know, one of the things we see over this passage is um, Paul's interactions with the people on board with him, and how they how even though he's treated kindly throughout the voyage, by the end, they're listening to him. Like, so, you know, and again, it's this irony. Here's, he's a prisoner, and by the end of this voyage, like, people are doing what he says they should do, and they're taking encouragement from what he tells them to do. Yeah, Bill. Yeah, that, bo that verse is the centerpiece of this chapter. Um, that, uh, you know, that it's God who, you know, it's God's must. <laughs> you must stand before Caesar. Um, and it's, it's that must that even amidst, you know, all the contrary winds and the storms and ultimately a shipwreck, that God's must is going to come to pass. And that God has given not Paul not just his life, but the lives of everyone aboard this ship. Which, again, Luke gives us that detail and number. We're not talking about, you know, an insignificant number of people. 276 people are aboard this ship. Um, and all of them are going to be saved um, because of God's purposes of getting his servant Paul to stand before Caesar. Um, I think because it says an angel, probably not. Because, um, uh, you know, the last time we saw, um, uh, you know, an appearance before God, or appearance of God to Paul, the following night the Lord stood by him. This is back in chapter 23, verse 11. The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you've testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So I think... Luke, when it's Jesus appearing to Paul, he's pretty clear to say it's, it's the Lord or it's Jesus. Um, whereas here, it's an angel, a messenger, has appeared before Paul and, and given him this mighty word of encouragement that Paul then turns around and uses to encourage the people on board ship with him. So, again, as we think of this verse being the kind of center point, uh, of the story, it's, it's God's encouragement to Paul 
that turns into encouragement for everyone. And God's purposing to deliver Paul. Again, if we were to like underline words that come up throughout the passage. Encouragement is one. Deliver or save is another. And they both, sozo is the, you know, the, the root of, of that word there. That, that they are going to be delivered. Um, they're going to be saved even when it looks like, you know, um, all hope of being saved, you know, they've abandoned all hope of being saved, and yet God tells them, you will be delivered. Yeah, Jay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and again, and, and as we notice, um, follow that, like how that, and that's one of the things I want to kind of pay attention to, that transformation that you talk about. Because, um, again, as you read from a, uh, you know, to go back to what Rob said, it's the chapter's about nautical. Like, if you follow the nautical procedures they're taking, like, they do everything they humanly can do to try to save the, the ship and the people on it, um, even at the expense of the cargo. Like, the cargo is, you know, the first thing to go <laughs> overboard. Uh. <laughs> yeah, and again, um, they're doing everything they possibly can do to deliver the ship, and yet they come to the conclusion that it's, it's hopeless. Like, they're and the sailors are ready to, to jump ship to save their, their own lives and the ship's small little boat. Um, so from a nautical perspective, um, this is a hopeless situation. Um, and, and they're the authorities that you know, um, take precedent in the first half of the chapter. But Paul, because he has faith in God, is able to deliver encouragement and an understanding of what's going to happen beyond what's humanly possible um, for them. Like he's able, he's not, you know, doing it himself, but he has faith in God. He's got this promise from God that not just Paul, but everybody aboard this ship will be saved. The ship will be lost. You know, again, there's no saving the ship, um, and, and everybody realizes the the ship is lost. Um, which is why the sailors are, <laughs> uh, we're, we're close enough to land that we, we're going to make a break for it um, and leave everybody else behind. Um, and uh, so the ship is lost, but, but Paul becomes an authority, again, um, not because he's wiser than they are in, in nautical mat matters, but because he has received this word from God that, you know, again, it's God's must, and God's must must come to pass. Good. Other kind of big picture themes that you, you see through this voyage account as a whole before we jump into some of the details? Yeah. Um, and again, it, this, that, that revelation and how Paul uses that to encourage over and over again, like, you know, we, we have the one vision, but multiple times 
Paul shares that vision with his fellow companions in a compelling way so that, you know, they take something to eat and they don't let the sailors leave the vessel. Nope. If we're going to be saved, we all have to stay on this vessel together. And plus, yeah, if the, the capable seamen aren't on ship anymore, then the odd, everybody's odds go down. So, no, we need those sailors. <laughs> They've got a role to play. Um, what do they need them for? At that point, the ship hasn't struck. Um, at that point, uh, you know, at the point the sailors are, are ready to abandon ship, they're, yeah, they put out the anchors and they think they're closed. They don't, they don't know where they are. They haven't struck yet. Um, and when they, they need them, because they're going to try to make this, you know, again, the, you know, they do more nautical stuff, like casting off the anchors, raising the foresail, you know, they're, they're yeah, they, they're trying to shoot into this um, bay that they're not familiar with because it's not part of Malta where people usually sail to. So they're, they're unfamiliar um, with the coastline before them. But they're the ones who, if you're shooting, trying to beach a ship in an unfamiliar bay, yeah, you want some people who, who know how to try to do that. <laughs> so, um, but it's, again, like, uh, you know, we have this one um, vision in the middle that Paul uses multiple times to encourage everyone aboard ship. And he emphasizes, you know, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. Um, so, you know, he has this sense that, uh, you know, confidence that comes from this vision that God gives. Okay, well, let's, um, uh, so keep that, you know, those kind of themes as we kind of look at some of the, the particulars of the passage. So in verse 10, when Paul, we have Paul's first of the four times we have Paul speaking in this chapter. So the first one comes in verse 10. Paul says, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with much injury and much loss, not only of cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But then later, he's going to say, everyone's lives will be spared, only the ship and cargo will be lost. So what's the difference between, like, how do we get from this one proclamation where all is lost, <laughs> if we go on this journey, to, yeah, the ship will be lost, but all lives will be saved. Like, um, there's a big difference. Uh, you know, it's um, from, from having this more drastic statement um, to the more kind of confident assertion that everyone will be saved. So how do we move, or how do we put those two um, statements of Paul, uh, yeah, how do we make sense of them together?
Yeah, so the first one, uh, I think you're absolutely all right. The first one is coming from a position of wisdom, experience, and, and notice Luke sets those details. Since much time had passed, the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over. So we're, we're moved into October, um, and customary practice was ships shouldn't sail after mid-September. And the, the Mediterranean shut down mid-November. So, you know, from September until the end of October, people would still try it, but um, it was inadvisable. From mid-November till mid-March, nobody ventured out on the Mediterranean. Um, the Romans actually had a phrase for it. It was the mare clausum, uh, the closed sea. <laughs> the Mediterranean shuts down for business. And that's what, you know, they're alluded to, you know, these winter months, like, you know, we need to be in harbor and stay there because the winter season on the Mediterranean is fast upon us and it becomes um, extremely dangerous to sail. And so that first declaration comes from Paul's, uh, you know, just kind of practical wisdom experience of the sea and just to kind of give you a sense of Paul's experience of these things um, in 2 Corinthians 11. Um, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys and danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, and danger from false brothers. Um, so Paul is quite experienced with, with danger. <laughs> Um, and oceanic, or not oceanic, but sea kinds of, of danger. Um, so that first one, yeah, it's, it's Paul's, um, his perception. Sirs, I perceive that the voyage, like, so Luke is narrating this as, as this is common sense. It's like, why my friend who goes, likes to go sailing in the Caribbean never books a trip in August and September? <laughs> um, Every now and then he'll do October, but just because it's a little cheaper. Um, but never in August, July, August, and September, um, because those are hurricane months. Like, you know, it's just kind of like, yeah, you don't do it. Um, versus now, like, when Paul gets this vision, now he has specific details about, like, the first one is kind of like general warning um, and leads to some discussion. But the second one is, a more confident declaration, again, because it's not coming from Paul's wisdom, but it's co coming from God's revelation to him. Yeah. <laughs> a day's voyage, tops. Yeah, it's a half a day, a day's voyage, which is why, you know, from the ship owners and the, the navigator's perspective, it, it's worth the risk. Um, so Paul, and, and um, some people talk about how um, uh, Jews tended to be um, hyper, uh, not scared, but um, worried about ocean travel. <laughs> um, like Jewish practices on sea travel were more cautious than everybody else's. So some people have pointed to it like, you know, Paul is being a typical, is, is expressing typical Jewish attitudes to the sea of being hyper-cautious in this regard. When, as you say, 
Yeah, they're going a half a day to a day at the most. And, and, and Luke's clear. They're wanting to stay along shore, not get too far out, um, to, to stay as close to safety as they can. Um, and it's a very violent, sudden storm that, you know, that hits them. Um, and again, Luke is very descriptive with, you know, a tempestuous wind, and he, he specifies it, called the Northeaster. Like, you know, we live in New England. We wouldn't know about Northeasters. <laughs> um, it's different in the Mediterranean, but the principle's the same. It's a violent tempest of wind, winds coming out the Northeast, um, and so all of a sudden, this sudden storm um, and strong tempest comes across the Isle of Crete and blows them offshore. Um, uh, I can't remember the, the exact title of the book because the exact title of the book is the number of days. This, um, it's about this um, Mexican fisherman who goes out with a companion. So two guys on a small fishing boat, they go out in the Pacific uh, quick, you know, go out, fish, come back. Um, they're coming back, and they're, they literally see the storm coming across Mexico toward them, and they're, they're within sight of land, and their motor conks out. And the next thing they know, they're 400 miles out into the Pacific, um, and he ends up getting drifting all the way across the Pacific um, and hits... Uh, he hits, um, I can't remember which Pacific Island chain, but he, it, and he's on, on this little dinghy for over a year and a half. Um, what? Yes. I mean, he made it like you look on a map and like, whoa. Um, and yeah, that he drifted. <laughs> um, but it's the, you know, it, it's, I, I thought of that because it's very similar, like, here he is, you know, in, in this boat, and you think, okay, they, you know, they're within sight of land, um, and, you know, they'll make it, but the strength of the storm, and they don't have sails or anything up that, you know, like these people do, like this is a sailed vessel, you know, the wind catches those sails, and it turns them <laughs> oh, the opposite direction of where they want to go, and even though they try to fight it, um, you know, Luke says, the ship was caught, could not face the wind, we gave way to it, and were driven along. Like, yeah, and again, Part of the confusion about where they go, um, so some people, um, like if you look at most maps, yeah, it says due west. Some people have them blown farther south, and some of it is the confusion over what we mean by Adriatic Sea and what they meant. Um, the Sea of Adrius, literally, they refer to that whole swath um, across the Mediterranean. So when they're in the Sea of Adrius, like it's hard, like we usually put them in the more northern part, which means they kept a more westerly course. Where it could have been, they were driven more southerly. So um, it's hard to know, and they don't know. They literally don't know where they are, which is why this reference, yeah, the reference to no stars, sun, um, for days. They have no way of, of knowing where they are. 
Yeah, I mean, but compass is only going to tell you what direction you're going, but... No, <laughs> they don't want to hit the coast of Africa, um, especially where they would hit the coast of Africa. And the reason they're, you know, notice they're on an Alexandrian ship that they got in Asia Minor. So most ships coming from Alexandria would go north and across, like they'd swing over the top of Crete rather than stay along the African coastline and then go up. Like, so, yes. Um, no, for the same reason, like this is not a good coast of Africa to, to be shipwrecked on. <laughs> um, yeah, it's not, uh, it's, it's better sailing um, to, to go the northern route. Um, and so that's why they're able to catch this Alexandrian ship in an Asian port. And there are lots of these Alexandrian ships. Um, and again, I don't want to get too much into the nuts and bolts. But um, Rome needed um, or received between 150,000 and 300,000 tons of grain from Alexandria every year. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they say wheat. So, you know, uh, they throw the wheat overboard. Yeah, this is an probably an Alexandrian wheat freighter. They tended to be enormous, um, which again is the number of people aboard. Um, you know, uh, over a hundred feet long. The biggest one that's been found, or one that's been described, was 180 feet long and 45 feet wide. So we're talking about a pretty sizable vessel that they're on. Um, and again, they're, uh, as we go to go back to the question, like what changes uh, between Paul's two statements? Well, it's the confidence that comes through the vision um, and then the direness of their circumstances, like, you know, th this process. Like, so the first thing they do is secure the small boat they've been tying, towing behind them. So let's get that in <laughs> before it gets lost and destroyed. And it, with great struggle, they're able to do that. And then they tie cables around the ship to help hold it together. Um, then they start uh, lowering the gear. So if you're being driven before the wind, um, you know, one way to slow yourself down is to not just take the sails down, but to take all the spars and, and masts. Like these things usually would be pieced together. So let's take all that down, get it on deck um, to reduce their windage. Um, and yet they're still being driven along. Um, and then the next thing you do is you start throwing stuff overboard to make the vessel more buoyant. Um, especially as they take on water, they're going to start riding lower in, in the sea. And so they want to get stuff overboard. And they come to that point, you know, and I, I love how Luke narrates it. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. You know, all hope of our being saved. And, you know, the first uh, person plural pronouns, Luke is including himself in this. You know, they've reached this hopeless situation. And then God speaks to Paul. And Paul passes this on. Um, you know, first with a little, I told you so. <laughs> you should listen to me. <laughs> uh, and not have set sail from Crete. Um, and incurred this injury and loss. Um, but now I urge you to take heart. Like, he doesn't, he's not doing it to be mean about it. Um, he's doing it to establish his um, credentials for giving this warning. Just like I was right 
and telling us not to sail, even more so you should believe me when I say take heart, don't lose hope, because God has told me, the God in whom I worship, the God in whom I have faith, has told me that all aboard will be saved. Not just my life, but yours too. Because God wants me to go to Rome and stand before Caesar. And my God, you know, I have faith that in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. Um, so um, the, the way that, you know, we go from kind of, a, a, for Paul, a state of kind of fear about the voyage, um, and if we, you know, Luke expresses it like, you know, all hope was lost to God speaking into the middle of this hopeless situation and giving hope not just to Paul and his companions, but hope for everyone aboard the ship. Um, and it's God's word that gives this hope and encouragement to them. Um, Anything else we want to say on the kind of change in Paul's confidence level? All right. Uh, so let's go back to this question um, uh, of, of transformation, of, um, of, of people's listening to Paul. So why would people follow the instructions of a Roman prisoner? Okay, one, he, he's, he's speaking from a position of hope, and it, he, the source of the hope, it's not himself, um, that he says, attributes it to God, and so, you know, Romans had great uh, respect for auguries and, and prophecies and oracles. Um, yeah, so they're in a point of, yeah, um, what else are we going to do? Um, but it's striking, like, how they're, they, they follow them, even to the extent the centurion, like, it, it seems like a, uh, um, it increases the danger of their situation to get rid of their small boat. Um, you know, that boat that, you know, they, and again, I love how Luke narrates this. They went through a great struggle to get this little boat on board the ship. Um, and then, at the moment where it's approaching where they might need that boat, and that boat is, is useful for, you know, um, lowering and raising anchors. They're also very useful in helping um, big ships get into harbors um, so they could be used to kind of tow a ship um, through oars when there's not favorable winds. So it actually makes their, by cutting loose that boat, it keeps the sailors from abandoning ship, but it also renders their situation more dangerous because um, that's one less thing they're going to have to help safely navigate their way ashore. Um, yeah, Ron. Yeah.
Yeah, so this, the change um, that takes place, and as you say, like, again, they're spending a lot of time in each other's company. When Paul goes ashore on Sidon, like, um, you know, it says, uh, Julius treated Paul kindly, gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. He would still be under guard, so there would still be guards that would accompany him, um, and we'll see this next week when we get to Rome. They give Paul kind of, you know, uh, you know, it's more of a house arrest than a jail arrest when he gets in Rome, but he's still under guard, like, you know. So when they let him go ashore, um, it's always with someone... Um, you know, observation. Um, which means when Paul is ashore um, visiting his friends, visiting the brethren in, in Sidon, you know, they're seeing that. Um, so there is, I, I think you're right, to see the closeness of this interaction that, you know, Julius treats Paul kindly earlier, doesn't view him as a threat, uh, gives him leave, to, to go do things that normally a prisoner wouldn't be allowed to do to the end where it's, it's Julius that is actually, um, you know, he wishes to save Paul. And again, Luke uses that word save. Um, it gets translated both deliver and save in this chapter, but he uses it quite a bit. The centurion is the means by which Paul's life is saved, by him preventing the soldiers from following kind of standard practice. Because, like, again, the guard are, uh, will be held responsible for any escaped prisoners. So better to kill the prisoners than let them escape. And Julius intervenes, not just for Paul's life, but for all the prisoners' lives. Yeah, Bill. <laughs> Maybe so. <laughs> they Yeah, their only chance is, is you know, and... <laughs> um, yeah, their only chance is because they think they're close to land. You know, the sailors suspected they were near land. Yeah, the bottom was getting shallower, and presumably they might have heard something, like, you know, because you can hear breakers, even in the midst of the storm, like, you can hear the breakers on the shore. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, uh, Paul saved, and again, Paul saved their lives by probably not letting them get into that boat. <laughs> Um, and notice, and yeah, and the Pacific is, was, yeah, it was called, as tough as the Pacific is, they called it the Pacific for a reason, because after the Atlantic, <laughs> it seemed like a big bathtub to European sailors, like, oh, this is so much more peaceful, <laughs> we're out of the North Atlantic, like, this is great. <laughs> um, but here, um, to, to, to build on Bill's seasick comment, notice, you know, they haven't been able to eat, um, you know, and different, you know, like, one, people have just, the sea is so tempestuous that they're unable to hold down food. 
um, you know, from seasickness, um, or that they've been so busy, and you read um, descriptions of, you know, ships like going around um, the, the Cape of South America and getting into a two-week-long storm, like um, Richard Henry Dana's Two Years Before the Mast has great descriptions of what going around the, the Cape was like. Um, and, you know, just the busyness of having to, to, to constantly be on duty working the ship that leaves no time for meals. And so Dana describes, like, going days without having anything to eat just because they've been so busy, you know, working the ship to, to keep it um, going, trying to work their way around this cape. Um, but they haven't eaten. Um, and, and Paul, um, at that moment, um, and again, the description, um, we can maybe spend some time on this, like verse 34, Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. Um, Paul knows they're going to, even though he knows they're going to be livered, delivered, he also knows they're going to need strength, because um, as we see, they're going to have to swim for it at the end, or for those who can't swim, a plank or something to paddleboard uh, to the shore, but they're going to need strength, and so he encourages them to eat, and in Luke's description, I mean, listen to verse 35, and when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat, then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves, what does that sound like? What? Stale bread. But that phrase, like how Luke narrates it, what is it, what is that description of what Paul's doing sound like? Yeah, Corey. Yeah, he's using very similar words to the Lord's Supper. And again, debate over whether he's doing this or not. The reasons usually people say he's not is because of the presence of pagans. But other people are saying, you know, it's, emphasized, it's still doing it uh, in a very um, sacred, he's, Luke is emphasizing, he's partaking food in a sacred manner. And again, to encourage them to eat. Like, um, and it's expression, this, this, um, the table that Paul is partaking of here uh, is an expression of confident trust and that God's promises will come true. Um, and you can see, uh, in the early church, they love to allegorize this chapter. Um, they love to, to, to like step away from the literal text and use this as an allegory for the life of a Christian. Um, who, and, you know, and, and sea journeys are great allegories for the Christian life. Um, you know, we're on this voyage that has a destination at the end, and along that voyage we have storms and contrary winds and um, shipwrecks. Um, and yet we're sustained on that voyage by the word of God and the sacraments, um, knowing that God will bring us to that safe harbor. Um, so if you look at a lot of, like, um, old... Uh, commentaries on this section of the book of Acts, they would often spiritualize it as, you know, this is a, kind of a parable of the Christian life as a whole, 
Um, but I think Luke is narrating it, again, as an actual voyage on which God is actually delivering his servant for his particular purpose to bring him to Rome, but doing so in a way that shows where encouragement in the midst of trials comes from. It comes from the word of God. Um, it's coming through the means that God has given them um, in a hopeless situation. That's the only place where hope can come is from God in the midst of hopelessness. Yeah, and he's been demonstrated to be right. Like, again, you know, um, that I think that, again, it's not an I told you so. It's like, look, I, <laughs> I was right in this prior debate um, that was had. I, you know, um, I was right on that one. Um, I have hope, you know, in the midst of this hopeless situation, I have hope um, that my God has given me that we will live through the situation. And they're willing to, again, to trust them to the extent that they start not doing standard procedure. Standard procedure would be to try to keep the small boat. Standard procedure would be to kill the prisoners. But, um, you know, they are listening to Paul and responding to what Paul has said to the degree that, um, you know, um, because of his courage. Um, we'll see in the next chapter, um, some people have, interpreted this as they view Paul by the end as almost a mini de deity and next chapter kind of explains maybe why that is. But I think you're right. It's, you know, the human response is in the midst of these situations, the person who keeps their head <laughs> um, and gives, uh, you know, gives order and purpose to a situation in which everybody else is, you know, <laughs> every man for himself. Um, and they respond to that kind of leadership. Yeah, that we're all saved, like, in this situation. We'll all be delivered from this certain death. Not just me. Um, and you're not being delivered because I have command over the winds and seas. Um, you're being delivered because my God has a mission for, for me. Um, and because God will do exactly what God has said, you have hope as well in that same God who keeps his promises. All right, well, um, we're at time, so let me uh, close with some prayer. So next week, uh, we'll see what happens um, afterwards. Uh, there's a little, like, another section of the shipwreck story once they get on shore. I thought about including it this week, but I like just focusing on the at-sea part today. Um, 
But next week, we'll see what happens once they crawl up onto the beach in, in what's now named St. Paul's Bay on the island of Malta. So let's pray. Gracious God, we do thank you for your care uh, for us. In the midst of hopeless situations, we can have hope. Um, not because of our own strength and wisdom, but we can have hope because of our God um, who has promised to bring us to our eternal home through the work of Jesus Christ for us, a work that is, has been completed in, in full, um, and we simply await uh, the uh, exclamation point on your redemptive history. We thank you for how the story of your intervention um, in people's lives and circumstances uh, even now gives us hope um, as we face um, circumstances that uh, maybe don't seem as dire as these that Paul and his companions faced, but in which you still care about and enter into and, and give us hope because uh, you are the God who keeps uh, your promises and we can trust that things will come to pass exactly as you have said they will, even though we also know that there will be um, uh, suffering and trouble along the journey. We know that you keep us safe until our destination's end. Um, even as Paul, in the midst of this um, horrible situation, uh, spoke of a God whom he worshipped, uh, so too, help us come in this hour to worship you uh, in spirit and truth, uh, knowing that you're the one who will not only deliver our souls, but also raise up our bodies that we might have eternal life with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask that your spirit would continue to move in and through us, working all things to your will and glory. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.